0: the GR Project. We seek to highlight Oaklanders who are impacting education, to amplify diverse voices, to engage in complex empathy-based conversations,
1: to connect to national issues and opportunities.
0: We're glad you're here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the GR Project. I'm Greg. Glad to have you all back. And hey there, Randy. How are you?
1: I am very well, Greg. Great to see you. And welcome to Episode 6, a very, very exciting episode. We had the honor of speaking with Dr. Cesar Cruz. Cesar is unquestionably an Oakland education innovator, uh, a Mexican immigrant who grew up in Southern California, Before attending UC Berkeley, Cesar engages with some of the most challenging and demanding issues in and on the educational landscape. He's a reflective and introspective thinker. Uh, Cesar was, uh, fascinatingly enough, um, the first Mexican-American male to earn a PhD in educational leadership, Yet, yet another doctor of educational leadership here on the GR Project from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he will command your attention right from the outset from his own immigration story to marching to sacramento and going on a hunger strike to working with gangs to help members find their inner and outer warrior scholar healer cesar sees himself as an abolitionist who is unafraid to challenge conventional wisdom and so-called bay area progressives who repeatedly fail to truly stand behind their espoused beliefs
0: we really hope listeners hear how cesar brings Intense passion, commitment, and deep analysis to his work and his partnerships. We know we came away feeling in awe of his work, his deep beliefs around service leadership. We asked Cesar about his youth and his vision of a new school model that supports youth who are in gangs. Like other guests, Cesar brings to his daily work wisdom of scholars, mentors, elders. History is alive in this conversation and past is present. The connections are rich and deep.
1: Let's get right into it. We really hope that you enjoy the show. Hey, Greg.
0: Hi, Randy. How you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: I am doing well. I'm excited about today's guest.
1: I am excited as well. It is an extreme honor to be able to welcome Dr. Cesar Cruz. To the GR Project. Cesar, welcome and thank you so much for
2: finding time to be with us. Randy, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Greg, thank you for being here. Uh, I've known Greg a long time and I'm just excited to engage in the conversation. As,
1: as are we. I, I'm quite confident it is going to be yet another fantastic conversation. So why don't we, why don't we jump right in?
0: Yeah. So usually we kind of start off, uh, Dr. Cruz, uh, with just asking folks to tell us their Oakland origin story. How did you come to be here and do work here?
2: Sure. Um, I migrated here when I was 17 years old. This was 1991, a year before the Rodney King trial verdict. And I found myself in the streets of Berkeley, not understanding what protests are. Uh, 17 years old. I didn't grow up in a household where we were uh, taking on issues of social justice, but really um I was hurt and in pain that these four officers were acquitted, and my first experience with the Bay Area really was getting arrested on the Bay Bridge in 1992 and beginning to have a coming of age. And so that's kind of my beginnings of coming to the Bay. Uh, Specific to Oakland would be two years later in 1994 and getting to work at the Fremont High School campus with an organization called Upward Bound. So,
0: I uh, here protests, a year later, 18, and you're arrested
2: on the Bay Bridge. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, um, I think that my mother and my grandmother did an amazing job of hiding from me and helping me, um, shielding me from a lot of the injustices that were happening in the world, and so I grew up undocumented, but I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, Grew up in another country, you know, settled here when I was nine. Uh, My mother was deported on three different occasions. We used to dumpster dive for food. And amidst all that, that was my normal, and I didn't see it as a struggle. I just saw it as, this is just our family, and this is how we grow up. When I came to Berkeley, I didn't know anything about Berkeley. It was 400 miles from home from Los Angeles, I think I was escaping home and I came in not even knowing what the word Chicano meant, this this politicized conscious Mexican American person and I took my first Chicano studies class and as I started hearing some of the themes that they were discussing, connecting it to contemporary issues like the Rodney King case I started having physiological responses, getting angry, getting upset and wondering why I had almost this wool over my eyes. Um, what I, when I found myself at Sproul Hall and later at University Avenue and later on the 580 freeway, I think I was responding to emotions. And then when I was in Santa Rita Jail, I felt completely ignorant because the student organizers that had organized that, that happened to be in a cell with me, asked me, what organization are you with? Are you a socialist? Are you a communist? Are you with this student group? And those words were way over my my head. Um, I was pretty clueless. And that taught me a lot that there's so much that I didn't know that it, it, it created the beginnings of a hunger to wanna find out who is this Che Guevara they're talking about um because there seems to be a whole history that I've never been taught um there's a
0: lot there and um we want to get into a lot of that um you mentioned Berkeley at 17 I'm I'm you know I'm trying to just make sure I understand the timeline and help listeners understand the timeline coming though migrating from into Los Angeles though at at 9 mm-hmm. okay so can you tell us um more about who came with you where are people coming from where were you in LA and 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 about like anything from 9 to 17 and sure. in Los Angeles
2: sure sure and you know it's hard to it's hard to be brief because there's so much to there it's like how do we cover a decade's life and let's do it in 2 minutes or less i'll try Um, you've got more than two minutes. Okay. Thank thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. I arrived here in the United States to Compton, California, and I arrived with my grandmother and I reunited with my mother. And that was a beautiful thing. I felt disconnected from my mother. My mother had made the migration to the United States on her own because of how difficult that journey would be being undocumented. But I, as a child, didn't know that. My father had already left. He left when I was two. And so I don't think I really missed him because I don't think I really knew him. It wasn't until these years that you're talking about where I'm I'm hearing about fathers and, and seeing fathers on TV and some of my friends have fathers and beginning to miss something. My mother had remarried and I had a stepfather, but my relationship with him was not strong. And so in our home was my stepfather, my mother, my grandmother, and then pretty soon I had a little sister. Later I would have a little brother. And we were constantly migrating. I didn't know that we were dodging sort of high rent and immigration at the same time. I just knew we were constantly moving. And the way I experienced that is I was never out of school for longer than a year. And so for me, uh, keeping friends was difficult. Finding a sense of home and community was difficult. And I was raised by my mother to be fearful of cops and immigration. I was called names in Spanish like a mojado by her, which is a Spanish language for wetback, and I began to identify as someone who is less than and not equal to you. I don't have your rights, I don't have your voice, and I should know my place. Uh, And if anything were to ever happen to my mom, um, run home, uh, don't tell people what's going on. And so I was living this life of someone with no papers, living in a lot of fear.
0: Um, speaking of the, the, and I'll ask this question. And then Randy, feel free to jump into, mm-hmm. um, but you mentioned school and not sharing, you know, having to hop from school to school, not more than a year. Uh, can you talk a little bit how the, your personal sorry, your personal school experiences connect to who you are like today as an adult, as a father and in your, your work? Like how there must be connections, obviously, and can you start to help us understand those?:
2: I th- you know now I'm 43, and I can go back and sort of uh, begin to analyze and piece stuff together. But at that age, what I was experiencing is I went to public elementary school in a small ranch community in the state of Jalisco in the country of Mexico. By third grade, we were doing algebra. I didn't speak English very well, but um, we had intense academic rigor in our public schools in Mexico. And when I came to the US, I couldn't call it rigor But I went to schools that were still teaching me basic addition and multiplication in third grade and in fourth grade and in fifth grade. And as I started to slowly learn the language, um, I began to check out of school because I felt like either they think we're dummies or we're slow. And so I experienced a dummy down slow education. Later I gave it language and so there's this amazing scholar, uh, her name is Doctora Ángela Valenzuela. She wrote this phenomenal book called Subtractive Schooling. And what she believes is that the more time that in particular Mexican-American students, but this could apply to many students, spend in most U.S. public schools, things get subtracted from them. Their sense of who they are culturally, their history, their roots, their language. And what I became by high school is a well-speaking, English-speaking person who no longer wanted to be Mexican. My name, I changed it. My high school ID card now said, Mm Caesar, do not call me Cesar. I don't want to be Mexican. I'm not proud of who I am. And I'm in a school with about 4,900 other Mexicans. A school of 5,000 students where there's no Mexican-American studies, no ethnic studies, no cultural pride, and I was becoming something else. I was becoming homogenized. Dr. James Lowen wrote this powerful book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Well, I didn't know I was getting miseducation. I hadn't read Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. I didn't know that I was educationally being lynched and, and that my roots were literally being taken from me. I just knew that I didn't want to speak Spanish. I certainly didn't want to speak Nahuatl. And I didn't want to be who I was. But I loved everything white. My teachers were white. Some of them were very young and very attractive. They were beautiful. And then when I looked at them and then I looked at my mother and I looked at my grandmother, they didn't have their looks and their beauty. So then all of a sudden my grandma became ugly and my mother became ugly and I became embarrassed of them that I didn't even want to invite them to school. And I'm embarrassed to say this because my mother's still alive and she'll listen to this. I love her and she's beautiful, but I could not recognize her beauty because everything I was taught was that white is beautiful, white is right. And because I wasn't white and I didn't fit that, I needed to either, uh, for all intents and purposes, annihilate myself. And so I experienced self-annihilation through high school. And the way I dealt with that pain is I began to drink and to do heavier drugs and to escape. And so those were really difficult times during my coming of age um, where I completely lost all the roots to my tree.
0: <clears throat> just, just to you and to listeners, it is um, it's a lot. And it is, um, I think you would probably, well, I won't assume, um, do you th- would you say that this experience is, is unique Or not that unique?
2: No, you know, I I thought it was. But then I read Subtractive Schooling. Then I met Dr. Valenzuela, who's a professor at UT Austin. And then I realized, but I didn't read that book till I was 38. And in a graduate program at Harvard University. And I was lucky enough to have a professor who had us read 20 pages from that book. I went home and I cried as a 38-year-old adult male, father of three. And realized, like... I've been subtractively schooled. It didn't just happen to me. And I had already been in education for almost 19 years, and I had seen versions of that happen to many communities. But I I don't think I always had the best and most articulate language and theory to give voice to what I had experienced. And so, no, I quickly realized it didn't happen to me just to me it happened to so many communities including poor white communities um if you give me permission to just share with you one story is that okay of course yes Yes. so 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 i remember um after about 15 years being in education and being blessed and so thankful that i would get invited to speak at different places i'm in biloxi mississippi uh, I meet a young man at a diner And I did not understand And I apologize to the audience for being so clueless I didn't understand that I was getting to have lunch At a, a local diner next to a young skinhead I didn't know I, I was just a young man who happened to have no hair At the time I had no hair I hadn't seen his boots I didn't notice his tattoos His ta- tattoos were covered up I'm just coming to eat And this young man who's much younger than me Is there eating And I was curious. I always am about school. And the language I got from him is F school. And I was like, why do you hate school? He's like, because they teach us all this white shit. And I'm like, what do you mean? Excuse my language. He's like, you know, they're teaching us about Lincoln and Columbus and all these other people. They don't know what it's like to be me, to be poor, to be white. And... I didn't understand him because I was judging him as a young white male, thinking that school and books and history and social studies had been written for him. But he says to me, do you know what they call my people out here? They call us trailer trash. And I didn't have the, 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 the chops to have a tennis type conversation back and forth to say, if they call you that, imagine what they call us. But I just listened. And I was deeply impressed by this young man just yearning to have a sense of power. He goes on to talk about some things that were really hard for me to listen. And maybe very apropos to 2017 to right now, he tells me why he loves Hitler. Why for the first time when he heard a translation of Hitler's speeches, it spoke about white power and it spoke to him. I couldn't understand him. I couldn't relate. But I understood how... A human being can be dehumanized and wanting to be humanized and wanting to have a sense of agency and feeling disconnected from textbooks so for me it was one of the first times in my life where I felt not an allegiance to what he was saying about Hitler but a yearning for being seen in textbooks in social studies in history we call that mirroring there was no mirroring for him as there's no mirroring for many of us, and that's a long-winded way to say it happens to many communities, including poor white communities.
0: And just for listeners, obviously, this is going to be coming out uh, after the to the tragedy that has been going on in Ch- or that happened in Charlottesville, and I know there's ongoing work uh, and and events. Real time to, to this production and this podcast as well, but um, yeah, um, it's it's it is apropos these stories. I think directly.
2: Could could I build on the language you just used? Um, because um, we have every right to call what what happened out there a tragedy. Um, I remember the first time I was introduced to who they call the Godfather of African American history. His name is Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that the worst sort of lynching is to teach a young black man, or let's say the African-American community, that you're hopeless and that you have no future. And so it's easy for us to identify that community, what recent happened as a tragedy, But we have a harder time equating what's happening in most of our schools every day as a form of lynching. And what we don't do in Oakland and other parts of the country is we never hang banners outside of our schools that say kids were lynched today by what they were taught and not taught. And so what's a tragedy is something that I want to complexify because that was tragic and three people died. But what happens when people mentally die? They don't believe they're anything. They're not going to amount to anything. When do we have national emergencies and presidential speeches addressing those tragedies?
1: Yeah, let's keep going in that direction. So just a, a quick check on my understanding. The your conscious, <clears throat> your consciousness of that self-annihilation, that that lynching in, in your life, came at age thirty-eight. Did, is, is, did I? Did I? No, no, wait, no, no. I, I
2: no. It's it's a process. So, for example, um, my grandmother at a at, at a young age would teach me about one of my uncles, who was a Mexican revolutionary, who was able to live until a month before I was born and was assassinated. And she would teach me these stories, but sometimes they went one year and out the other. Yeah, yeah. My consciousness uh, was always evolving. I, I, I think I didn't begin to wake up till I was about 17, 18. Got Not it. 38, but I think at 38, when I read Subtractive Schooling, what happened is I began to give a theoretical lens to what I had experienced as a kid going through Los Angeles Unified School District. Got it. Okay. So,
1: and thanks for that clarification. Just that's exactly what I wanted to ask. So, <clears throat> against the backdrop that you've just painted, um, the time that gets spent in classrooms on a number of subjects could be could be framed as laughable. So, what's what's your perspective on How do the schools, how could the schools, are there any schools that you can call out um, begin to provide opportunities for greater consciousness sooner?
2: I think it's not for lack of intent or trying Mm -hmm. by many conscious educators. Mm -hmm. But I think um, I'm not necessarily a historian of the roots of public education. But what I understand of public education that the intent was to teach people manners, good citizenship, and then create a good workforce. And what makes for a good workforce does not make for a critically conscious populace. They don't go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we need, uh, you know and we needed during the industrial revolution, good worker bees. And today we need good worker bees. So the language of a couple of hundred years ago hasn't changed that much that now we say through link learning, through 21st century skills, we will create uh, well-prepared young people for the new jobs of today and tomorrow. But it's the same system of education that's training worker bees. I don't think the plan was ever to create critically conscious folks because then they might actually read the Constitution of the United States seriously and they might want to organize and create an upheaval and create revolution and change. And so that's not beneficial to power. That's not beneficial to maintaining certain folks in power and certain systems in power. And so I think that you might have some schools throughout the country that are going against that narrative. However, what they're being faced with is that, for example, if a family chooses not to send their kids to school at all, we've made that a criminal offense. And so we've placed such a high stake on kids have to be in school 180 days for for 12 years. So I think where you were going earlier with what you were saying, that we're not spending a lot of time in certain subjects, may be true. But we're expending we're we're spending an excessive amount of time in the system of schooling, a hundred and eighty days, six to eight hours a day, for twelve years. And we can't figure out how to create critical consciousness, we don't want to. And there's schools, so for example, here in Oakland. There's a new school in its infancy going into its third year called Roses in Concrete by a good friend of mine, Jeff Duncan Andrade, and many other amazing educators that are trying to do that. But what they're being assessed on by the state is not social justice, critical consciousness. It's about mathematics through a certain perspective and English through a certain perspective. And so... What do you teach to and how do you teach? And I think the great educators can do both. And uh, Jeff and the amazing folks at Roses are trying to do that, as teach to what's happening in the test at the same time of creating and helping young people develop their critical consciousness and their sense of social justice. Um, But it's not an easy thing to do. And Jeff and I, along with many other amazing educators, we shared a school here in Oakland back in 2006. It was called East Oakland Community High School, and it was part of the small schools movement fought for by many people, including OCO. We were the beneficiaries of that fighting, and we were only allowed to exist for three years. We had a high school, a school here in Oakland, very much driven by social justice. And right away, the state shut us down, but what they used as an excuse was, well, the small schools movement is really expensive, you know, we need to keep the lights on at very separate uh, places, everyone needs their own principal, why not uh, consolidate and go back to a big school again? But they weren't looking at the data of how uh, scores were improving, kids were feeling empowered, communities were feeling empowered, because that was never the purpose. And I don't think, excuse me, yeah. I don't think the purpose of education is to empower. I think it's about creating good worker bees even today. Mm-hmm. So
1: so in specifically here in a in a city like Oakland where and I I'm going to apologize in advance for the the Seeming naivete, perhaps, of this, but I, I, I really want—I want to I, I make sure that you are able to, to, to take a clear crack at this, where, while there is certainly not integration at the levels that we might like, the. The demographics of the city's population are significantly more diverse than most cities in the country. I think I think we're the second most uh, diverse in terms of in terms of race and ethnicity, um, at a minimum city right now. How how does this conversation get elevated? How what opportunities, if any, are there in Oakland to try to lead? on how to advance the conversation that that you're talking about.
2: You're you're asking a really powerful and complex question and I think I wanna unpack some things if we can before we even answer it. I think you mentioned that Oakland, big Oakland, 400,000, 500,000 Oakland yep. is uh, when we count people and we box them into ethnicities or racial markers is diverse. Hmm. When you visit McClyman's High School, Fremont High School, and Castlemont High School, where is that diversity, correct? And so one of the things that's really powerful about data, it can tell us whatever we want it to tell us. So the data of the demographics of Big Oakland can tell us we're diverse, but the way people experience Little Oakland, the barrios, the hoods, the yes. neighborhoods of Oakland yeah. is completely racially oftentimes segregated Absolutely. and sometimes by economics, by class yeah. and other markers. Yes. And so I think that I think first we have to unpack that, mm-hmm. that some people believe that their Oakland experience is downtown Oakland, Lake Merritt. um, some even call parts of Piedmont, the Oakland Hills, and they may hardly ever see a person of color yeah. or someone who is struggling economically. And so, and their Oakland may look very different and their outlook on the world may be very amazing. Um, Three nights ago, four o'clock in the morning, uh, a car gets stolen on my block on the 6400 block of East Oakland and a baby was in it. Um... It took a while for cops to come. Imagine you're a parent. I'm a parent of three. And they jack your car and they take your child. Um, The experiences that a lot of people are having, and I'm one of those people that is blessed and privileged enough to be able to rent a house in gentrified Oakland. And then a few blocks away is what we call the living room where a lot of our people are living in tents in a homeless encampment right in front of a church that says to them, as long as you don't interfere with our church going folks coming into our church, you can do whatever the heck you want to do. And everybody sees the level of homelessness happening, but hardly anyone seems to want to do anything about it. And so I think we have a lot of difficult and amazing conversations to have But I think what we have to do is unpack, unpack, unpack. And if Oakland were an onion, we have to peel a lot of layers and understand how did the flatlands even get created? What is this 580 to 880 corridor where what's concentrated there is so much poverty and toxins? One of the things that the news never reports on, and now I'm being long winded and I apologize. But when we see the, uh, the this evening's news and we hear violence in Oakland, we don't hear environmental toxins on San Leandro Street. We don't hear Fremont High School, Castlemont High School, miseducating young people, not teaching them their roots and their history and it happening from kindergarten to 12th grade. We don't hear that there's 151 liquor outlets, which includes gas stations, restaurants, bars in a quote-unquote five square mile radius. We don't hear that the access to cocaine and to guns and to weed is so intense in East Oakland, but we don't have a single bookstore in East Oakland. And so all of that to me is the conditions of violence that are perpetrated on people and community. But how do we unpack that? And one one last thing I'll say about violence. Violence is really amazing for Oakland. Here's what I mean is that we have well-intentioned folks and really good, caring folks like Nicole Lee at the Urban Peace Movement and uh, some of the folks at KML who are, have been championing the Stop the Violence Movement in Oakland. But violence is big business because if someone were to shoot my 10-year-old son, let's bring it home. It creates overtime pay for the police department. For the fire department, for the coroner's office, for the funeral home, for the cemetery, for the rosary shop, for the t-shirt shop, for the local church. Everybody makes money off of dead black and brown primarily bodies. We do not want to stop the violence. And when we quote unquote find the perpetrator or find whomever and we lock them up, we make more money for the prison industry. So... How do we have a conversation about integration and education without peeling all of the onions? And I think here's the solution. I think that Albert Einstein would always tell us that if we have only one hour to talk about integration and critical thinking and social justice, we need to spend 55 minutes on the diagnosis. So I'm happy to, whether it's in this conversation and others, if we have an hour, spend a deep dive on the diagnosis before we jump to any kind of solutions because what our lenses informs us about what we do. I, I
1: completely appreciate that, and I I, I think I, I probably didn't articulate it as well as I might have, but that is that's a, that's what I'm looking for is is that diagnosis and and does, is it relevant? Are Oakland's demographics even relevant? Uh, because perhaps are not to trying to address the numerous problems that you've laid out at any kind of scale.
2: Can I, can I take a different stab at that question only because I can't know your wonderful intent with the question and it's a powerful one and a complicated one. One of the things that's beautiful and complicated about Oakland is that we're inundated with education organizations. Mm -hmm. We're inundated with foundations, with nonprofits, with social service agencies we have enough, I think, to fix problems uh, up to the next millennia if we wanted to. But I think what we talk less about is the nonprofit social service foundation industrial complex. Is that many of us here in Oakland and in the Bay Area make money off of poverty and we do what I call poverty pimping? And we've existed for millennia. We've been around 40, 50, 60 years as an organization, and we still have no progress to show for the things that are going on. And I think those are the things that are really difficult because in order for us to have a serious conversation, it attacks people's privileges. For example... Earlier we were talking about some of the things that are happening in our country and we haven't talked about white supremacy or white privilege, but who would ever really want to give up their privilege? Like how many people in the hills really want to give up their home? How many um, people with really good paying jobs want to really give those up? And so, But in order for equity to enter into a conversation, some seats need to leave for others to step in. But how many folks really want to give up their seats? That's a difficult conversation that may be well intentioned, but not completely honest, and not at a point where people are willing to give up their seats at the table. So, so um, given given
1: that, then I, I'm I'm wondering is the diagnosis in your view that yeah, on some level. The demographics and the differences that exist between many populations within a city like Oakland matter, but on some level they don't because fundamentally humans are wired to protect what they have. I'm I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just try, I'm just reflecting back a, uh, a question that comes to mind given to given what you've just said. Is that uh, how does how does that feel in terms
2: of a diagnosis for you? I'm not sure. I'm not sure because um, I, it sounds like what you're coming back to is this quantifiable uh, alleged diversity that we have. And I'm not sure how diverse we are of thought, mm-hmm. of experience, of class, um, of outlook and of analysis. And let me put it a different way. Um I had a chance to go to UC Berkeley, and I had a chance to go to UC Irvine. I want to tell you why I really loved going to Irvine, and I really hated going to UC Berkeley. Because in UC Berkeley, there were many so-called people that labeled themselves leftists or progressives. Many of them were wearing beautiful tie-dye t-shirts that they had bought at the uh, Across the Street Urban Outfitters. And they were having this amazing Save the Whales rally at Sproul Hall, uh, literally walking over uh, people of color who were, happened to be homeless to get to their rally. And they, they invisibilized many people uh, to get to their so-called progressive politics. And that's what I experienced, and that would be my very rudimentary analysis of UC Berkeley and so-called progressive politics in the Bay Area. Then I went to UC Irvine and they told me what I could do with myself. They told me that I should be deported, that I'm a beaner, that I'm an illegal alien. And I absolutely loved and appreciated their honesty. We don't have a lot of honesty in the Bay Area. We have a lot of fake so-called progressive leftists uh, that cloak themselves in the language and traditions of quote-unquote leftist movements, but really don't stand for anything. That's Oakland.
0: Thank you for continuing to bring everything, and of course, how else? What else could you do but bring everything in your responses? So, but but it it means it means a lot as as for me personally, as I get to listen and and continue to learn. Um, I'm wondering. So, I think I think you have analyzed and diagnosed and have started to get clear pretty you just said you know even in just your last response more than you know you've done your fair share of the hour that you might have with Albert Einstein like thinking about this but where where are you feeling you still can you can you get clear with with us where we're still where you think you're like, I need to read these next books, or these are the issues I still wanna kinda get clear on before i jump to the solutions i want to still name the problems because you've been studying you mentioned harvard your own life experience and your teaching work and so
2: I, I think um i also i want to complexify what i just said because i think if if we don't then it's easy to pull out quotes and so i think my experience with young people in dp stokeland has taught me that there is a a grittiness, a griminess, a hunger, a passion, a sense of Black Panther Party uh, history that many elders and young people embody in Oakland that feels very real and is what gives me a tremendous amount of hope. But that isn't what I see reflected in most educational organizations or nonprofits or social service organizations. And so there's these multiple Oakland's that are at play. So and now back to your question. I think that I have not done a deep enough root cause analysis to understand all the systems at play. Because here's the thing, is I keep hearing all of these scholars from Michelle Alexander to anyone else that tells us and they, they cite these statistics and they say, we spend about $10,000 per pupil in Oakland to go to school. And as a state, we spend about $62,000 per pupil to lock them up. So I guess that that would allow someone who is about economics and mathematics to make some common sense decisions and say, well, we might have our economic priorities mixed up, and so let's just change that. Let's defund prisons and fund schools. Why hasn't that happened? Because we've built 23 new prisons since 1980 in California, and we've built only one new college, that's UC Merced. We don't want educated people in California, and the proof is in the pudding. We have funded 23 institutions, and those are prisons, and one new university. We don't want an educated populace and so I want to understand even deeper why and how do we dismantle that and how do we stop that kind of organized power. You and I can buy stock off of prisoners on Wall Street. Who cares about these social justice activists and these schools and these organizations? At the end of the day, what's talking is money and power and we can buy stock off off of incarcerated human beings. There's this new documentary, but a lot of people have been saying this for a long time that the 13th amendment abolished slavery except as a punishment for a crime. And so slavery has continued. And so I want to better understand is how do we create an abolition movement that takes on slavery in all of its forms. And earlier, if we start to tie some strings together, I think what we were talking about was mental slavery in the form of subtractive schooling and the lynching of the mind and the potential of a human being. Now we're talking about physical slavery in the form of incarceration. And so what I want to best understand is this dynamic fascinating, multi-trillion dollar system of slavery that has made so many people in the Bay Area ridiculously rich and they will not give up that power without a fight. And they're here in Oakland and they're in the hills and they're in the Bay Area and how do we take that on? I'm fascinated by that and that's where I'm going to spend my life's work to unpack that and to fight that kind of power. So
1: coming back a little bit to the the diagnosis point, which I so very much appreciate for what is the, what's the frame, what's the diagnosis for that you look through to do that work that you are committing yourself to,
2: you know, in a simple way, because I think one of the mistakes I could be making is being all over the place and nowhere at the same time. And so I think let's bring it back to a school. Mm -hmm. The three of us are getting to visit a school in East Oakland. What I would typically do in terms of a school observation is I would just notice who is in the advanced placement classes. And who is on the remedial track. What do they look like? Um, And then I would notice who is the teaching force and who is not. I would analyze what are they studying, what are they not. And so that begins to paint a picture. I also love to listen to educators and all of the podcasts that you have done. I love the language of education. It's such a beautiful sugar-coated language. And this amazing educator once said, If you sugarcoat the truth, it loses its nutritional value. So we have coded language. We don't want to call kids screwed and hella poor, so we say free and reduced lunch. And when we visit a school, that's the first thing that progressive educators tell us. We have 93% free and reduced lunch. And it's the coded language, this sugar-coated, non-factual, non-deep analysis understanding of what's happening. We never map any cultural assets, any community assets. We never talk about um, all of the beautiful things that a community has, especially a community that we see through the lens of broken windows. So I think what I look for is I look for what other people tell me and I begin to try to unpack, are you noticing the broken windows? Are you noticing what you think the broken people are? Some people call that the deficits. Um, And whatever you're looking for, you'll find. And so I'm always very curious as to people's frame. So maybe my frame is asset-based. Maybe my frame is problem posing. Maybe I've become wired by society to be somewhat skeptical of data Um, and to wanna dive deeper and to ask questions, especially the seven whys. And so that would be the extent of maybe my initial frame without jumping to uh, an overgeneralization and a conclusion to just try to unpack. How are you thinking, Randy? Like, how how are you seeing this? Um, and and to get a better understanding of what you see. One of the most powerful lenses uh, and frames that exist in education is savior complex. And. I had a chance to study the last 50 years of Hollywood films. Um, from Freedom Writers Diary to The Principal to everything in between. And we paint two amazing narratives of school and, and, and hoods. A broken window and a savior shows up. And both are really powerful narratives that are so pervasive and they all influence almost everything that we do. And so when we look at Oakland, we still have a broken windows analysis of Oakland. We have this perception that, that Oakland is broken and it needs fixing. And that if we just have the right superintendent or the right teacher or the right principal, they will save us. Very simplistic analysis, uh, but very powerful analysis that have been force fed to us for a very long time.
0: What are you, I mean, I, I I'm, I'm like, Where do we donate where do we ha- when do when can I vote for you? and all those sorts of things. That's what's going through my brain right now so i I guess I'm next wanting to know like so you have some tremendous gifts for community. you know that you you can you've you have you've been learning and you are able to articulate truth in a way that is compelling. I think our listeners are experiencing that right now. What else are you doing directly? What are these steps you're taking right now as you're trying to build this abolitionist movement?
2: I don't think I don't think of myself through any of those adjectives. Um, And and when usually someone says that I'm really tempted to want to fart at this moment, but that would um, change the whole dynamics of this podcast. So I'm going to squeeze them and hold them or I'll pick my nose. Because when we build up anybody, yeah, um, that's extremely problematic. And then, you, that's not what you're doing, though. Um, you were you being very nice and very gracious, and I'm thankful for your nice adjectives. But um, for other people, not you, but maybe for any listener, I think part of what we build up is this cult of leadership. This charismatic leader. That if we just had those, and you know, we saw the failings and shortcomings of that in the sixties. So I think the short answer, the long answer, the short answer would be, I want to build a movement with you, Mm -hmm. with Randy and with other like-minded people. And we, I want to peel the onion with you. And then I want to build the garden with you. Uh, And I don't know always what that looks like. What I am doing right now to, 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 to get a little bit more specific is I decided, well, I've been sitting in the sidelines for quite a while. I've been at someone else's school. I took a chance at opening up a freedom school with other people in our home in Richmond, California, and it was successful, but it wasn't an accredited school. It was an after-school program for all intents and purposes. It was all volunteer run. It had the spirit of a freedom school, the spirit of a Black Panther school, but it wasn't helping kids uh, get accredited and receive the units that they needed to graduate and we saw its shortcomings. I was part of a small schools movement called East Oakland Community High 11 years ago and we were shut down. And now as a parent, I'm experiencing a beautiful new idea in roses and concrete and seeing what that could manifest. I wanna put some skin in the game. Because, man, everybody pontificates. Everybody has an opinion. You know, there's a lot of crude sayings that opinions are like a-holes. Everyone has one. What good is my opinion? I would want to put skin in the game and put skin in the game with your listeners to say, why don't we build something new? And I think that there's that old baseball saying that if you build it, but you also let people know about it, and you don't build it alone, and you welcome in an entire community to build it together, I do, my theory of action is that they will come. And the working definition is this idea of empowering homies. And I would love to unpack that if we have time later, but why is it called homies empowerment? How is that a counter narrative to gang prevention? How is that youth development? How might that provide a new type of school? How might that be exciting for Oakland and the Bay Area is my hope. I'm deeply passionate about that and now If I have to give myself a a title, I'm a cheerleader by, by nature, but I get to be privileged enough to be a Mexican immigrant school designer, and I haven't met too many of those. And that means I'm broke, that means I had to step down from some positions that were very lucrative, and I'm taking a risk and trying to design something that could ultimately fail or fall flat on its face but I'm entering into this idea of designing a school, and I'm so excited about it, and I've partnered with some great people here in Oakland, including yourself, Greg, and just excited about that idea of creation. And I may be so foolish that how could a new school counter the machine that is 15,000 school districts? And I think the, the theory of action that I'm operating from is that It might be hard to change 15,000 school districts, so I'm tired of trying. I'm just going to try with a team of amazing people to offer new kind of water, a counter-narrative, with the hopes that slowly the things that exist in these 15,000 school districts become obsolete because they start saying to themselves, we don't know how to reach gang-involved youth and youth coming out of incarceration and youth who are 18 with a second-grade reading level, but this other place, this oasis of social justice and rigor and culture is doing it. we got to check that out. And that as long as we can sustain it before the system comes to shut it down, we will have created another model. And if they shut it down physically, that the students, the families, and the communities that build that, take that with them to wherever in the world they go. And then if that spreads, this idea of empowering homies, of doing education as a practice of freedom, of creating something that, that could change the world, and, and really actually believing in that, um, I, I, I think that's part of the medicine. I think that would give us reason to wake up in the morning, to deal with the mundaneness and difficultness of some of the shortcomings of our society and who doesn't want to create? Who doesn't want to be part of something that's possible? But to tell you that it's well defined, that it's all spelled out, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, not all the people are at the table yet, and it's when they come at the table first they got to peel onions, and then they got to dream about what's possible. And you usually,
0: do some crying when you peel the onions, I'd
2: imagine. Chistoso, um, <laughs> yes, no, yes. I, sometimes yes, and and it's real. I and mean, we I... just had that, so we just had a reunion of homies, youth, so. If you allow me to go a little bit into homies, homies was this amazing dream. Wait, wait a yes, second before yes, we allow yes, you.
0: Yes, can can anyone in this room not imagining? Say, sorry, having permission to say what you need to say. Yes, of course. Please. Go. She's, She's also like times
2: yours. two. She's also Spanish for funny guy. For anybody who doesn't know that, I appreciate Greg's humor. Um, I I I don't want to go too much there because I don't know where you want to take the conversation. But I think ultimately what what I was trying to say is that. I was blessed to meet amazing young people who didn't fit in boxes, but who were being boxed in. And we've done an amazing job to label certain kids gangsters and thugs. And that's the new language for terrorism. And so, you know, back in the 1950s, our terrorists were communists. And anyone who was labeled or had any inkling or connection to a communist, they were part of a red scare. And then this fear tacturing and fear mongering where they were incarcerated, killed, deported. And the new buzzword is a terrorist. And our urban terrorists are kids that we label gangsters. It's easier to suspend them and expel them and incarcerate them. We lock up 10-year-olds here in the Bay Area. My son is 10. He's, he has just reached a ripe old age so that we can cage him in Alameda County, Progressive Bay Area. And so the idea of homies is, what if gangs aren't the problem? What if gangs are second family units? I would want to describe to you, if you let me, the following organization. You've got to sell product. You've got to put in work. You've got to wear a uniform. You've got to be deeply committed. You've got to put in work. You're gonna have sisterhood and brotherhood. By the way, what am I describing? Randy, Greg, what am I describing?
0: Any business or a family or a gang.
1: Okay, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that that came to mind was Cutco, the the knives company. I know that's not what you're just, or I don't think that's literally what you're describing, but you you
2: two are very advanced, because I am. I'm describing the Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts have to sell product, Mm -hmm. put in work, wear a uniform, be loyal, be committed, and they'll have sisterhood. Girl Scouts get to self-actualize, and they're celebrated in this country. They're as American as apple pie. But the same things that help Girl Scouts self-actualize is what we demonize in gangsters. And we do the same thing with Marines sharpshooters and gangsters who have shotguns. Marines who are sharpshooters and are sent all over the world to kill are national heroes. And homies with guns are the worst terrorists we've ever had. We have a really interesting analysis problem. And so we have tried gang prevention in this country since maybe 1910, 1920, in an organized way. I want you to tell me of a city or a community that has gotten that right. I think no one because they're barking up the wrong tree. I think it's not about gang prevention, but understanding the role that gangs play. There was this psychologist, Abraham Maslow, who in 1943 said, in order for kids or anyone to self-actualize, they need their basic needs met. They need food, clothes, shelter. Then they need a sense of belonging. Well, most gangs provide Maslow's hierarchy of needs for most hoods and barrios in the country. They do an amazing job of doing what our social service nonprofit and schools are not doing. We should be applauding gangs, funding gangs, understanding gangs, studying gangs, applauding gangs, but instead we're trying to blame gangs, incarcerate gangs, and lock, lock up gangs. So we're going to build a gang school. We're going to build a school on gang principles, on gang values, for gang-identified youth. And it's going to be amazing. That's homies empowerment. That's the dream. Um, Six years ago, that idea was ridiculous. And then I'm, I'm a cow, and I got branded with a big H, Uh, Called Harvard University and a little H that I'm more proud of called Homeboy Industries And now all of a sudden now that people have to call me Dr. Cruz By the way that's not my name my name is Cesar Uh, All of a sudden my idea is fundable Let's try that because I got branded like a cow with a doctorate. I was saying these things six years ago, but six years ago, this was scary and threatening and ridiculous to think about a gang school built on gang models, but you put a doctorate from an institution that is 379 years old, somehow it's safe and let's try it. So interesting, interesting what we listen to and who we listen to and when, and so I'm honored to be in this podcast. I don't know if I would have been here if I didn't have my doctorate. I want to say no because of my connection with Greg. Uh, I hope that you will uh, bring in leaders who have amazing leadership that does not translate on the resume and that uh, most people would not identify as leaders and I've got a hundred names to give you at a later date and time, um, they are the young homies that I've met that, that have changed my life, that have taught me right from wrong, that have taught me about values, about brotherhood, about sisterhood, about having your back. That is another part of Oakland that is such a jewel, such a blessing, but we demonize it and we just call them gangsters. Keep...
1: keep um illuminating the concept talk talk us through an example of the type of child that would be in the model and what that child's day looks like from before they they come to to school to when they go home
2: yeah um thank you thank you for that question um it might be a young person who is 15 years old in Oakland, in East Oakland, and may have been kicked out of every other school in Oakland. May or may not be in quote unquote a second chance, a last chance, a continuation school in Oakland. May or may not be incarcerated and coming out of incarceration. May or may not have a hundred credits or zero credits to graduate from high school. And so the uh, typical approach from most schools is let's get you academically on track. But if we don't unpack what this young person is carrying, and what I mean by that is their assets, because most people that do this work, they think that they're revolutionary because they're trauma informed. So they see this young person through the trauma that they think they have, and they equate trauma with PTSD. Not all trauma becomes PTSD. Not every kid in this situation is is suffering from PTSD and it's understanding their resiliency. If this young man happens to be a drug dealer, I don't know how many of my fellow educators in Oakland are thinking, but I'm thinking a great candidate for Stanford's MBA program. Because a drug dealer has organization, strategy, entrepreneurship, makes a dollar out of 15 cents, is able to hire an entire community. The resources that they bring is amazing. But that's a horrible economic business example. But it's just one example that I wanted to give you. But I think when I think about young people, I think about unpacking when they used to dream. So it might look like, what do you dream about? And having that conversation. And oftentimes what I've heard over 19 years was, I don't really dream about anything. I'm living in a lot of nightmares. Let's unpack that a little bit. What are those nightmares like? When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? When are you most alive? When are you most passionate? What would make you want to wake up in the morning? And oftentimes what we hear, man, I don't need all that. Talk to me about getting money. So this place has to have paid internships. We have to be able to help kids meet their basic needs because some of them have families some of them are putting food uh, in, you know and taking care of an entire community and taking care of siblings and others and so it's it's a place that's meeting basic needs that's helping young people unpack their schooling experience and then dreaming about what education could be like what they would want to do if we start to notice that they want to mess Mess around with things We begin to talk about Hey, have you ever thought about coding? What would homies coding look like? Do you know what coding is? Have you ever thought about being a street journalist? What might that mean? And those are what other schools call pipelines Or pathways And so we do that in an organic way We might create an advisory system Let's say, uh, heaven forbid But let's say that Randy, Greg, and myself Were all lifers in prison And we're all at San Quentin or Rikers Island. Hopefully Rikers Island gets closed real soon. But let's say that we're lifers in prison. One of the things that we're trying to do at this school is that the three of us could get to be advisors at this school. We could show up via technology at least once a week. And imagine what that does to the incarcerated wisdom that exists. We have so many wise people that are never going to get out of prison that are being caged that could become elders, teachers, maestros, healers, um, advisors. And so part of our advisory system is that way. And we have four pillars that we're thinking about at the school. And I'm going to try to I'm going to try to pl- play with education language, but. Because we want to be resiliency-informed, we call that the 21-foot ladder. What the heck is that? My mom, on her three times that she was deported, I never understood how she made it back. And she used to say, Mijo, you've always focused on how high and how difficult the border is. The border's about 20 feet high. I've always carried a 21-foot ladder. At the school, We will help young people find their 21-foot ladder. It's in them. They will find the counselor within, the healer within. So their very first course might be a college-level course called neuroscience. Why neuroscience? Because it might be an opportunity to understand, why do I feel like I'm a rubber band ready to snap? What's happening to my amygdala? What the heck is an amygdala? Why is it getting hijacked? Why am I always fight or flight? And when you begin to understand what's happening to your body, to your block, to your society, you begin to have some control in your life. And so that's the first concept, this 21-foot ladder. So many schools are project-based learning. We call that banging for freedom. A lot of kids are banging for their block, are banging to put in work for their neighborhood. We want to understand the concept of what would it mean to own East Oakland? Who used to bang for freedom? The Black Panthers did. The Young Lords did. What does it mean to understand what they do and how might we bang for freedom? So that means that we're going to do projects that have real relevance to their lives and that are about change. Some people call that civic engagement. But we put civic engagement to the max. That's the second concept. So 21-foot ladder and this notion of banging for freedom. Then we say we're familia style. That just means we're a cohort. The reason we believe in a cohort model is because gangs are set up that way. As who has your back of a big homie, a younger homie. Maybe the big homie is an 18-year-old. Maybe the little homie is a 14-year-old. And they're walking on this journey together as a family unit. And the success of you is linked to my success. So we're working on this together as a community. We talked about Maslow earlier. And I know I'm going all over the place. But Maslow took a lot of his ideas from the Blackfoot Nation. And there's a second pyramid. Maslow was looking at the, the, the pinnacle of Abraham Maslow's work was self-actualization. But that's at the bottom of Blackfoot Nation's indigenous philosophy that once you self-actualize, how amazing it is when you help a community actualize. And what does it mean to pass on these stories and this wisdom and this knowledge? And at the top of this so-called pyramid for the Blackfoot Nation was this idea of cultural perpetuity. Fancy language to say, how do we pass on our history and culture forever when schools don't do it? And in the Blackfoot model, it isn't a pyramid, it's a TP. So in this home lives self-actualization. So what this means is, Randy, your freedom is tied to mine. Your actualization is tied to mine, and our duty is to pass on these good traditions, for when we pass on, this wisdom continues for seven generations from now. So we have the 21-foot ladder, we have the notion of banging for freedom, we have familias, and we're homie-centered. And homie means we focus on the individual. In schools, when a kid is having a hard time, we create an IEP, Individualized Educational Plan we call it Individualized Empowerment Plan. And we, co-craft, uh, we, we co-created with that young person and with the people that are sacred in their life. And we call that, and we borrowed this term from Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, we create what's called a secure base. It has a navigator in it, which is like a big homie who helps you navigate through this school who maybe has been there a little bit longer. It might have a therapist. We don't believe in case management because none of our kids are cases. We believe in care management. So, But it might have someone who's part of your care management team. It might have an elder in your community, yourself, and maybe a friend. And that becomes your secure base. And these are the things that we're using as wraparound support. That can really help a young people grow, develop, actualize, thrive, graduate high school, pursue a higher ed, pursue other things and learn about what it means to bang for freedom. But we're in year zero of development. If this seems like we haven't figured out, we don't. We've been studying models throughout the country to figure out who does social justice education at the high school level, who does culturally rigorous education at the high school level, who does cultural work from native and indigenous traditions at the best at the high school level. Who does this all three with gang members? And not many places in the entire country do it. We want to do it, but that's going to take us time. That's why we want to launch fall of 2020. That seems really far. But 2020 is a sacred number. It's a sacred number. It's not perfect vision, but it's much clearer vision. And we believe it takes us that much time to really incubate an idea, workshop it, get better at it, find amazing people here in the Bay who said, Hey, I want to, I want to be one of those care managers. Or I'm really good at keeping a school running from a fiscal perspective. We want to meet those people. And the reason I'm bringing this up now, I'm hoping someone's listening. I'm hoping they want to join the team. I'm hoping that they have a value add, that they see this not as my school or our school, but a community school that will try to bring something different. And, again, I'm sorry for being so long-winded on that, but I wanted to try to share what little I know so far.
1: Yeah, you're... you're... (laughs) I'm certainly not, and I'm quite confident Greg is not, and I'm willing to bet the listeners are not either. You're, you're, you're not being and long-winded. And to be clear,
0: you're answering questions that we have literally written down in front of us that we have just we don't have to bother asking you. Yeah. So you're just you're just putting it all together. So you're you're right on target, my friend. Thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you.
1: So say sorry. I think I'm still not. It goes all the way back to the diagnosis conversation. I'm and I'm I'm. My intent is not to harp, but th- that, that frame is so strong and I really want to understand it because I, I think it's a really important point, but I haven't, I haven't yet gotten it, which is the model you just described, at least parts of it, as I was listening to you, strike me as there is no one who would not benefit from developing the skills to self-actualize. teachers school leaders privileged children right when when one of us is not i think by definition none of us are right so i'm i'm curious cuz i don't i i don't think i could walk out of this room right now and be able to articulate what is the unifying part if there is maybe there isn't but what is the unifying part of that vision that could bring anyone who is interested into that conversation or could be used to extend the model as appropriate to whole other populations. Again, under the assumption that this notion of there's probably no one who would not benefit from learning how to um, to, to self-actualize to experience the vision.
2: I think, uh, I love the way you frame things, and I think that um, if done well, if done right, one of, the th- one of the, some of the things that we're thinking about is, what does it mean for a young person to find what we say the healer within? and What we mean by that is, how might I love myself? How might I be okay with myself? How might I find the resources to deal with the tribulations of life? Healer within? How might I be? How might I find a scholar within? To see myself as intelligent and that that's a muscle that can grow. And to see myself getting multiple doctorates and not seeing just the obstacles, but seeing that I too am smart or can get smart. And the third one is this idea of the warrior within, that I can be a change agent a social justice warrior, and that I can find my life's calling, whatever that may be. I want to believe that that could be applicable in many places throughout the world. That that kids from whatever circumstance would be better served by filing the healer, the scholar, and the warrior within. I'm banking, and I don't mean Freyda's banking concept of education banking. I'm hoping and praying that those three pillars could serve as a model of how we might create a new generation that is self and community actualized as they do the work. We don't self-actualize them, they do the work. I think that what I would want people to consider is who are the least of these in Oakland? Who are the most marginalized? And I'm not sure if the two of you have spent time in prison, but when kids spend time in prison, something happens to the ability to dream, to the ability to believe in themselves. There is this um, cognitive training that begins to happen when you're caged where you know you're less than human. So I would want to compel and ask people in the Bay Area and throughout, whoever's listening to think about who is the most marginalized, and how might I stand with them until the marginalizing stops. And that's not my mission, and that's not even my phrase. That's the phrase of one of my mentors, Father Greg Boyle. The reason he created Homeboy Industries with many other people over 30 years ago is he wants to stand with the most marginalized. So I would want to create a kind of school and a kind of model Where people might think would be the least effective. With the quote-unquote hardest to reach. The least prepared. And all of the negative adjectives that get added to what I find to be deeply resourceful, amazing, charismatic, caring kids. Who are just trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Who are trying to survive. Who are trying to thrive. Who the world is throwing everything at them to cage them and incarcerate them. Because I think if we invest in them, what we will find is that a kid who may have been willing to kill you for some shoes might now bang for freedom. And when I might be afraid to take on this president, this kid might not. And they don't need to do it violently. That's not what I'm advocating for. But they can be agents of change. Um, They've been raised that way to be agents of change, to figure out a way out of no way. So I don't think the solution is in the school or in the adults. I really deeply think... It's in these young people. When they find their sense of purpose and their calling and they begin to actualize that, we will create a new society. I just want to cheerlead that. I want to be a part of that. If I get to have one more day of life or 30 more years of life, I want to be part of that. And I would hope that our listening audience would want to be part of that. And that might not be their direct community, but there might be something for them to gain. From being in community that way From seeing kids Who are the most tattooed Who have quote unquote the most scars Who may appear the most threatening For them to see them As whole As human As jewels As change agents As the best thing our world can offer They've never gotten that privilege I want to help create that Uh, it's, as as a way to just keep
1: illuminating the idea, you've you've presented this vision, I think, for a while, and and to to investors is 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 that right? No, no, ne- no never
2: no. never to investors, but I think, for example. Uh, I remember going to city council meetings, yeah. being invited to uh, community-based meetings by uh, folks like council member Desley Brooks. Mm-hmm. This was maybe like a decade ago, presenting the vision of homies empowerment. And I don't want to say it fell on deaf ears. I was very thankful that someone invited me to speak about it. Desley Brooks did, and I thank her for that. But it gained no traction. Yeah, And I don't blame them. I mostly blame myself because I feel like maybe I didn't have the most compelling way to reach people. And I also have to understand what are people's value systems? What do they care about? How am I presenting things? And so one of the things that I'm now deeply thinking about is what is the public value of this? How does this create safe streets? How does this create, um, uh, a reallocation of resources? How does this save people money? And I never necessarily thought that way because I thought we would just care about the most marginalized, right. Right. and right. boy was I wrong.
1: Right, I, well, I, was, I was gonna ask you that question because that was my suspicion. I, I should have I actually used the word f- funders, and let's expand that to um, anyone who might have um, been in a position to, that you sought out to support you. What, I, what I'm curious about is, um, what are the kinds of pushback that people have provided to the idea? Um, and I'm asking because I su- strongly suspect that those the, the pushback will illuminate exactly the kinds of things you were just saying ha- you've learned to identify as important in the in the messaging of the idea or meta important yeah. or something. Is
2: like yeah. is it okay to say where we're at like physically we, right now? We are Welcome.
0: in my employer's large conference room. I work for the Rogers Family
2: Foundation. And the reason I bring that up is that this is the first time, I'm 43 years old, this is the first time in my life um, that I've ever really been in a foundation. I came here uh, maybe a couple of months ago because Greg was nice enough to set up a meeting with me. I don't understand the foundation world. I don't understand funders. Uh, Greg asked me a question earlier that I can better answer now. One of my many growth edges is that I don't know yet how to translate everything I just said to certain funders. Um, And so part of what I need support with or folks to step up and say I do is I need a a re-education and an education about how do we present this in a way that's fundable. But my only pushback there to all of that is, is that if we have to package things in a way that dilutes its content and a way that loses its nutritional value, those are funds that I'm very happy to walk away from. I walked away from them when Chevron offered us. They offered us uh, quite a bit of money when we were making a little bit of headway in Richmond, California, and we had a freedom school. They wanted to get us a building and they wanted to get us some resources for our freedom school. And there was quite a, a, a healthy discussion in the community, and by healthy I mean some irate parents saying, you are a stupid ass for not taking their money when they always take ours and you could build the school of your dreams. I'm naive to think that there are some funds that have less blood on them than others. And that may be my Achilles heel, but um, I am a big believer that who funds you owns you. And the people that have been most generous to me in my entire lifetime, uh, economically generous, have always been the poorest of people. Always, 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 always. The last thing I'll say to complexify all of this is my grandfather, may he rest in peace, one of his famous anecdotes is, and I'm translating it here. Some people are so poor that the only thing they have is money. What do I mean by that? What did he mean by that? Is that... um, I don't think the way for this to be sustainable... Is just with paper money. We need many architects. We need many hands. We need many expertises. And when all of that comes together... The funding will come. Everything else will come. And we don't have to sell our soul. And we don't have to change. And we don't have to do a pony show... And do a song and dance. However... That may be my naivete, my never presented to funders. And so um, I have a lot to learn, and I'm very open to learning, but I don't want it to get to the point where we compromise our core values just to sustain the work because all of a sudden we have what's called mission drift. Just in trying to open the doors, we've already drifted from our mission. What's the point of opening the doors, I would say?
0: I I think from the few years that I've been working in a foundation uh which I think it's the only one I've ever worked in so it's only one experience um has it you know it has its own ways of doing business uh that are typical probably across the sector but also has things that we do a little differently um I think you have a lot of I think a lot of your intuitions from what I'm hearing are probably pretty accurate and that um around the idea of a compelling, authentic school vision will attract the resources you need. But I wanted to ask you, one of the resources you do intend to pursue, I believe, and expect is the taxpayers of the state of California and becoming a publicly funded school. And to the extent that they will own part of your school, they will compel a grad requirements and a testing regime. And you, I know we talked on this. What, how does, how, in the thinking you've just done so far, obviously fall 2020, you're building a crew, you know, everything. But where, even in that initial basic set of requirements, we give you the money, but you got to do X, Y, and Z. Where are you already feeling that you need to go to Sacramento and be like, governor, uh, state board, you should change this, this, and this, and that, like, where or And where do you think, no, 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 we can handle those requirements, we'll push right past?
2: Whew. Um, I think you're asking a question that in the next three years I'll better answer, but I'm going to take the stab now. If we are blessed enough to receive a 17-year-old who has had a disruptive schooling experience for most of their life, who has been incarcerated since the age of 10, who is that, uh, for all intents and purposes, a second or third grade reading level. And the expectation is that we are exactly like a traditional high school, and that that student will be out by age 18, unrealistic. So we will have to study the models that go outside that box. But some of those models, like there's a phenomenal school here in Oakland that is trying really hard to figure this out, they're called Alternatives in Action. They're in my neighborhood, in the 60s neighborhood of East Oakland. And they're accepting young people age 17, 18, and 19. But up to a certain point, the state has a cutoff. Then it becomes adult school. It becomes something else. So I think what we're trying to figure out with the state is, could we create a hybrid model of adult school, of high school, without dumbing down? Rigor, academics, social justice, and cultural empowerment. And we want to track everything that's meaningful, like attendance. Like how are they doing academically? And we want to give them multiple assessments. The state is one of them, but we don't want to rely on that as our only indicator of academic success. And so I think that if, if what we explore is a public school, if what we explore is a public charter, if what we explore is an alternative school, everything you just said is 100% true, that it's a uh, taxpayer-run school, it has certain requirements by the state, and we have to figure out how do we do that in the most truthful and authentic way, and I don't have a good answer for that yet.
0: Do you think, though, that part of your work will actually be, be sharing back to the state or the authorized or whatever, like, here's your expectations, we understand them, here's how we are going to meet them and be true to us, and here's how we should set up the regime from jump so that we could actually make, like, an even better school. Like, I'm just wondering, is that part of the responsibility you're feeling to actually shape the rules within which you are going to operate?
2: I look at it a little differently because... We dream of being successful and doing this well But I'm not um, I want to speak for myself Um, I am not I don't have any illusions That we will create a model that is ideal That's yet to be proven So who the heck are we To tell anybody how to do things When we've proven no success However, however What we can testify to is that when you are blessed and privileged enough to work with a 14 to an 18-year-old who's had disruptive schooling, certain boxes that we have for them, the traditional high school, the alternative high school, and adult school, don't always fit. So what we may be ultimately advocating for is a fourth space. And we first have to create it, I believe, show some evidence that their success. To be taken seriously in Sacramento and elsewhere. And so I think that it's too early to say that. I think we want to open ourselves up. Some people call it a lab school. I struggle with that because we test a lot of things on rats. And based on when we test rats, uh, then we make determinations for humans. Well, the rats in our public schools tend to be poor people and kids of color so I struggle with the language of a lab school. But what I'm fascinated and I do agree with is we wanna be a developmentally growing uh, organization that is open, where we're constantly innovative, self-reflective, and trying to figure this out over time and with different young people as they shape what's happening. And I think my goal is that by the end of year one, we can share, here's what we've learned. By year three, we have some initial successes and by year four, we have some of our first graduates. And by year five, I think we're in a position to say, here's what our model has tried, here's our successes, here has been our shortcomings, here's where we wanna go. We hope to be given the opportunity to continue. Here's the challenge. We haven't talked a lot about Oakland or Oakland Public Schools or Oakland Education at all. But we've had some amazing institutions, and I I say amazing in quotes, that have been allowed to exist for 70, 80, 90 years. Public high schools who have been amazing at producing such a dropout and pushout generation, and we allow them to exist decade after decade. What we're going to have to fight for politically economically, and with community support, is to have the ability to exist after year five. Because we need some time to really prove what this looks like, and then we wanna follow our young people. What is, most schools do never track what happens after they graduate high school. We wanna create the system so that we can do that. And that we have cohort models, like there's this organization called the Posse Foundation. We wanna develop the Homies Foundation so that we have our first few graduates, and they all, go, uh, uh, they all go to Cal State East Bay. They all go to SF State. They all go to UC Berkeley. We want to c- continue to provide support and longitudinally see how well did we prepare them or not prepare them. How much remediation do we still need to do? How are they having success in college and beyond? What happens after college? When we said we were developing the warrior within, how did that help them through college and in their life's path or not? And that's heavy stuff to track. We want to do that. We want to invest in that. We think that that matters. And we think the reason we fund Healthy Start, uh, no, excuse me, Head Start so much, is because with Head Start we've done amazing longitudinal studies, and we can say kids that were in Head Start thirty years later that we track them. We want to do that. We've learned from those models. We want to have Head Start kind of analysis over thirty years. But most people don't ever get that privilege or they don't know how to set up the systems. That's why we want to give ourselves the next three years so that we're tracking everything and we're tracking it over time. Um, and and we want to be held responsible post them leaving us. Most places will never tell you that.
0: Well, and the regime may want to hold you responsible sooner than that.
2: Of course. Of course.
1: You want to jump in there, Rainy. Yeah, I just – I. I <clears throat> S- something that you said at the very beginning of that last answer really, r- really struck me. Um, and for some reason, I'm a little uncomfortable sharing this, but I- I'm obviously going to push on through here. So you, you, you said we haven't had any successes yet. So who are we to say? And I don't remember exactly what you said after that, but I, th- I think you were, you were recognizing the fact that this is an idea. That hasn't been proven. Again, I'm not looking to put words in your mouth. Does that does that work? Yeah. I think that, that, that I statement.
2: think I think that's part of what the state and the larger society will argue. So, if I can just add something, in yeah, the, and yeah, I want to yeah. hear your question, yeah, yeah. is that we're going to have to lean on our best practices research on youth development, on self actualization on working with gang-involved youth. And there is over 50 years worth of data of what works. And so it's not that we're just shooting stuff at a dartboard and hoping it lands and sticks. That's not what we're doing. And
1: that's exactly what, what struck me is in the context of this entire conversation I think your life and the people that you have surrounded yourself with who are passionate about this work are a form of longitudinal study. There is real success, I think, to be identified. It's clearly not, in the main, the type of success that is recognized via EDCODE. And no, none of us are naive to to think otherwise, but it feels like it may be very important to continue to put forward the notion of part of the whole point here is redefining or at least expanding definitions. And I think there are real successes that that and I know you know I know you know this. This is why this is the uncomfortable part, right? But I, I just I want to in the context of this conversation to not to lose sight of the fact that these experiences have got to begin to be considered as successes, mm. would feel like a real miss if I followed the conversation correctly, mm. and maybe I haven't, right? But
2: And, and you know, um, I just wanna appreciate four organizations that are foundational to our thinking. Mm-hmm. In uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts, there's a 30-year-old organization called ROCA, R-O-C-A, mm-hmm. and Molly Baldwin's work is pioneering in this field. In New York, Uh, In particular, in Harlem, there's a 20-plus-year-old organization called Brotherhood Sister Soul who has pioneered some of this work. In Santa Cruz, California, there's an almost 40-year-old organization called Barrios Unidos, or United Neighborhoods. And in Los Angeles, California, there's Homeboy Industries. So I think what we are doing is really looking at the best practices throughout the country, codifying them, Uh, and creating something new amidst here. And so we have to, I think, do this duality of presenting what has been proven to work and a real cultural humility to say, this has been proven to work, but we are in a new venture. And we are not speaking only from some expertise, which we do have, but also from a lot of cultural humility of what we're trying that's new. Mm-hmm. and what we could use other expertise around and support, and it's this dance. And I think most people that get deemed experts aren't allowed to be culturally humble. When they So, for example, um, tonight on the news, you will hear experts about different things, and they'll say, this is an expert on North Korea, and this is what's happening. And they present it as fact, and they don't complexify most of their statements and they don't even challenge themselves. And so I think what I was trying to do with this podcast and in our conversation is to do that dance that's a hard dance to do of both speak from expertise and speak from a point of creation and growth edge and that duality that most experts aren't necessarily given the privilege to do. And even less so, school developers of color And even less so, school developers that are providing counter-narratives. And so what I'm up against is really interesting because as I've gone to school development conferences, I'm one of. Uh, What we haven't talked about is the lack of diversity, Um, the segregated world that is school development, that is... What are the nonprofits that we fund and what are the schools that we fund? They do not operate with funders who look, with school developers who look like me, who have tattoos, who are not citizens of this country, who have the lived experience that I have and who have the cultural uh, and analytical frames that I bring. Um, So maybe sometimes I'm a novelty in spaces. Other times they don't even know what to do with me. They're surprised I speak English and can conjugate. And they think all I'm good for is is being a great cultural worker. And so there's so many barriers to overcome and yet we're still here. And uh, in a very humble way, I was able to get that Harvard doctorate and it was not easy. Uh, I never saw a teacher who looked like me during year one of my program. I was one of the only Mexicans people had ever met and navigating academia to get to the point to do this uh, sometimes was hell on earth in the form of racial battle fatigue, microaggressions, macroaggressions, uh, stereotype threat, and so many other things that have been diagnosed as horrible toxins and impediments that are very real in people being able to graduate. And that's why Latinos there's these new statistics that have come out. Uh, they came out in 2015. Out of 100 Latino students in the country, only 62 graduate high school. Out of those 62, only 24 go on to get a go on into a bachelor's program. Out of those, only eight get a bachelor's, only two get a master's, and only point two get a doctorate. And so, when we're looking to form this team. And when we're looking for funding and other resources, I wonder sometimes if I need some white allies and white colleagues to actually get funded because what the leader of New Profit on the East Coast told us is that when a white person comes into a boardroom, they're X times more likely to be funded. And when a person of color leader walks in, they're least likely to be funded. And this is the leader of an organization called New New Profit that focuses on funding. And so I say all of this to say I don't always know how to swim, but I want to tell you what my good friend saying always tells me. She says, if you have to be in this ocean with a bunch of sharks, be a turtle. And I thought that was really counter narrative and it made no sense to me. But she's like, you don't have to bite like them, act like them, be all intense. This is not a shark tank. It may appear that way, but you can navigate as a turtle because you're always home, you always have shelter, you're always protected, you're at your own pace, you're at your own values. So all this time, it's been a humble attempt and a stumbling attempt for a turtle to speak to you in a world filled with sharks.
0: Dead air is... Not usually the best on an audio medium, so we're going to try and keep going on, but I can see, I know my, I know what's going on in my head and I can see Randy just trying to continue to process as we find the next place we want to ask you about. Um, I don't think we're quite ready to go on to, uh, to kind of our closing set of questions, Randy. I think, I think you had a few things you might want to touch on, um, I'll I'll go ahead and just jump in. This is going to be quite a pivot, I think. Um so Brandy, feel free to bring us back to something if you if you want. Um in doing a a little bit of of homework uh before you came on um we came across some times when you have put yourself um physically uh and you you mentioned even Harvard has it's Uh, its own physical impact i'm imagining in terms of your experience and you're nodding again here on the audio medium um can you tell us about um uh marching for you and and striking for you and what what was what has that been for you and what's that like um i know that's a kind of pivoting but i'm i'm really curious about that and i think folks will be
2: too I remember, you know, my first Chicano studies class at UC Berkeley. I was so ignorant. I didn't know anything about this man named Mahatma Gandhi. And the first time I learned about Gandhi, um, it almost felt mythical. And and I'm embarrassed to say that I I think what was presented was this idea of a charismatic leader. And what what I wish would have been presented was the real movement that happened. And But what I learned about Gandhi and the people organizing in India is that they were dealing with an empire so powerful that the sun never set, the British Empire. And they figured out a way, when they were being attacked violently, to organize nonviolently by fasting, by not eating, and taking on the British Empire, and ultimately kicking the British Empire out of India. As I was beginning to wake up, as I was coming out of a slumber, of a lot of miseducation, that really radiated and just opened up some pathways for me. When I learned about Gandhi, like physiologically, I started like having a reason to hold my head up high. I'm like, why aren't, why aren't we all studying Gandhi? When I learned about the United Farm Workers, Filipinos and Chicanos, who had been so downtrodden, organizing one of the most important labor movements in the history of the United States marching 350 miles in the freezing cold to get to Sacramento, going without a wage for five entire years to organize a boycott, I would get chills in my body. This wasn't just like random history or social science anymore. I finally had mirrors and windows and sliding doors. The mirrors, they, these people look like me. The windows, they showed me what's possible. The sliding door, I could walk into it and see that a new world was possible. And so I realized we got to march. I used to be a, a peaceful schools teacher in uh, Downer Elementary in at the border of Richmond and San Pablo. The film Coach Carter had just come out. They made all this money uh, talking about and spotlighting Richmond. But West Contra Costa Unified fired every every, every counselor, every music program, every art program, every sports program. And the ridiculous solutions by some of our Bay Area partners was the Oakland A's said... We are going to help you, Richmond. We are going to give kids baseball tickets. And if they sell baseball tickets, maybe they could raise enough money to save their sports programs. So these 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds started selling A's tickets. And I was seeing all of this ridiculousness. And my third graders, Kenneth Say Chow in particular, Kenny was like, where do they make these decisions? And we're like, they make them in this place called Sacramento. Well, how far is that? It's like 80 some odd miles. You think we can go there? He came up with the idea of a march and a lot of us jumped on board and then it became more organized and was called the March for Education. And over their spring break, we marched over 70 plus miles to get to Sacramento. And then we see this governor, Governor Schwarzenegger. We see him but he refuses to meet with us. And that, and we saw how shifty he was, and he didn't want to talk to us, and we realized there might be some people power here. All of a sudden, what I was learning from the United Farm Workers seemed real and applicable. And some of our elders, like the, the great uh, late Fred Jackson, who was part of the neighborhood house in Richmond, a civil rights leader and a leader in Richmond, said, we've got to fast. We've got to follow in the traditions of Gandhi and others. Um, and you know it's Like like uh, this, this wonderful idea came to be We ended up fasting And we started to fast in Oakland The year was 2004 And I didn't know how many days We could go without eating I'm hungry now And we've only been talking for like An hour and 30 minutes One day turned into two Turned into three And we fasted for 10 days straight Under the Oakland tree In front of City Hall and they were about to arrest us. And then we thought, well, let's take our plight to Sacramento, and we fasted for 16 more days. On the 25th day of the hunger strike, we met an amazing leader who they just made a documentary about who's about to be out in theaters, a documentary about Dolores Huerta, again, the United Farm Workers. And she happened to be friends with the wife of the governor, who's who's a Kennedy, who's a Democrat. And she helped us, and we brokered a deal with the governor of the state of California through a nonviolent civil disobedience in the form of a hunger strike, they returned chump change to our district. They returned $600,000 every year for the next 15 years, and it took that long, but ultimately West County became debt-free. And what that taught us is that it may be possible to create change with nonviolent civil disobedience, that teachers like Dolores Huerta or Gandhi were on to something. People like Harriet Tubman who organized things like an underground railroad might be good lessons for today. So I'm going to digress for a second because too many of our people in the Bay Area are angry and depressed at our president. And they don't understand that Harriet Tubman also had a difficult president. And some people think that the conditions right now are difficult, so they talk about 13th Amendment slavery and how bad it is now. Well, Harriet Tubman faced a difficult system of slavery then. She was four foot nine, half of her body paralyzed, and she organized, and she was creative and innovative, and an entire movement fought for freedom. So why can't we learn from that? So for me, history is so alive. Sociology is so alive. It is, to me, one of the most important sciences that we have because we can learn from other movements for these times. So I'm not hopeless. I'm hopeful. I'm not feeling like it's the end of the world. I'm feeling like it's the beginning or a part of larger movements for social change. And I don't know if I'm even answering this question for you anymore, but more than anything, I came alive when I learned my history and I realized that I would dishonor it by not actualizing what I was learning. And so I was doing what Bloom's Taxonomy would ask me to do, is to not just regurgitate facts about the history that I was doing it, but I needed to actualize and to do something with it and to have my own project-based learning. That has been my life's calling, is to organize, to agitate, to cheerlead, to stand up, to speak up, to, 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 to stand back, to build coalition, And I have never figured out how to do it well. I'm in process. I'm always becoming. That's why they call us human beings because we're learning to be. We're just being. Um, But this is my life's calling, and I'm activated and and honored that you gave me the privilege to spend some time with you all talking about this stuff.
0: I want to actually talk about talking because you – I've been – the way – you like language. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and and language is really important to you in terms of – you mentioned about – you know, some traditional school systems have this language. We use this language. And precision around that matters, I think, for you. So in the spirit of Randy here, first, let me check that. Is that true? And, yeah, you're nodding. Okay. It, it, it is. Okay. And then, so where does that come from? Why is language, and this might, maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm leading you to something or not, but why is language so important for you? How How is that connected to Our humanity and to the to the history you've learned about oppression
2: you know I think it comes from a lot of places I remember my grandma um, wasn't allowed quote unquote to speak up much my real grandfather was very patriarchal and I never had a chance to meet my real grandfather but every time my grandmother spoke up she would get lacerated in different ways and just dehumanized so my grandma never spoke a lot, but she, she the way she dealt with her trauma is she whistled all the time while cooking, and she sang songs. And I realized there's a real power in whistling and singing songs, and she practiced what a teacher would tell me later is what she was doing. She always had maximum impact with minimum words. I learned that from my teacher, June Jordan. May she rest in peace. June Jordan told me that the power of poetry is a space where you have maximum impact with minimum words and you pack a punch. I learned in spaces like June Jordan's class that like, don't tell me about love, describe it. I hope that in this broadcast, I didn't tell you with some random adjectives about school that maybe I described school in such a way that it might make you feel a certain kind of way. And I hope I didn't over-speak. And so I think what I've been trying to do is to value words, value their impact, be conscious of them, also be conscious of my privileges. Uh, If I would, if this was a group of of men and women, if I kept saying you guys, of understanding the patriarchy and machismo that exist in language, being cognizant of that, and understanding that ultimately, I could curse at you. We have national figures that when they reach the podium and they're given a mic, they have such a blessing and an opportunity and they could uplift and provide hope. And yet many of them stumble. They don't understand the power of words. They don't understand the power of history. They don't understand their own agency. They don't understand their own brevity, And so I became a scholar of Malcolm X. I became literate through Malcolm X. I remember stumbling through his autobiography and then I was so fascinated with his speeches and he said so much with so little. He packed a punch. He didn't need to curse, but I heard his speech. Before I even dreamed of Harvard, I heard the speech he did at Harvard and he just schooled everybody. And I realized what a power are these ideas that get manifested through this thing called language. I'm an English language learner. I should not have English mastery. I was always behind in terms of my language development. So I worked twice as hard. I wrote twice as much. I read twice as much. I practiced twice as hard, and that prepared me so that I think that language and conversation, some people might call a form of war, a form of of the, the, the exchange of ideas, I don't look at it that way. I have an opportunity to share beauty, to share love, to share life, to share perspective. I wanna be really cognizant of the words that I use, but I'll tell you what my wife says. My wife hates spoken word artists. And when she met me, I was a spoken word artist. And we were on tour, and I'm not gonna name the tour, cause I mean no disrespect to the tour. But she got to know some of those poets. And she said when they go on stage, they talk about freedom and justice and equality. And then when you meet them backstage, they're trying to sleep with everybody. They're trying to get everybody drunk. And they do not live. They espouse certain values and they enact very different values. So what my wife has always taught me is speak, yes, but try to do it mostly with your heart. And what I've learned most of my life with working with young people is they do not care what you have to say, what you think to know. They want to know how much you care. So I speak a lot with young people and I hardly use my mouth. Um, I'm hoping to have been able to articulate that today, but I just think there's a real power in language And some of it is the physiological language that when you meet someone that you think is really cute for the first time, your body's speaking to you. Physiologically, something's happening to your hairs. When you ate something that went horribly wrong, you start getting the runs. We call it chorro. Your body is saying to you, F you, Greg. You ate the wrong thing. But we don't understand the different languages that we speak. I'm just trying to be in tune. There was an author that I would read to my grandma at bedside every night before she passed. She died of Alzheimer's. And his name is Victor Villaseñor. And he wrote a book called The Thirteen Senses. We think we only have five. And so it's becoming in tune with the different senses that exist in our universe. And if you asked me to name them, I couldn't. I couldn't name all 13. But it was just such a powerful novel that taught me about... We've been speaking in the English language. We've also been speaking with eye contact. We've also, also been speaking physiologically. We've also been speaking with our dreams and our fears and our concerns. We've been speaking with our amygdala getting hijacked and not. We've had cognitive dissonance and we've had moments of connection. And all of that is so amazing and beautiful and dynamic. And that's what makes us humans so amazing and, and complex. I think on on that
1: note, um, we should we should start to to wind down the poem that, <laughs> that you've been composing. Um, you, I think, have you've spoken to some of the the five questions, but we'll ask them anyway um, because you'll you'll add to the the tapestry of answers that that others on the podcast have have provided. Um, and uh, we we discussed this ahead of the podcast, right? But f- feel free to reject the, the the premise of the questions if you if you so desire. Greg, you want me to get started? You want to start? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So the the first question is, what is your most radical education idea?
2: I don't know that I have one. I don't know that anything that I believe in is radical, um, but. I've spoken a lot about really putting all of my educational chips on gangsters, on incarcerated youth, on developing the warrior, the healer, and the scholar within, and believing that they will change the world. I don't believe that's radical at all, but a lot of public school systems might argue otherwise.
0: Um, you've mentioned a lot of scholars and mentors that were important for you. So um, potentially you've already answered this question as well. But who do you consider to be the most innovative voice in education today and, and why? And even with it, when you hear that voice right now, what might you st- uh, think that they might still not quite get right that doesn't quite jive with how you see the world?
2: I don't think I have one. I think that um, I want to answer your question, and so I'll take a stab at it. I think for me, uh, my mom plays a huge role, and she's not, um, no disrespect, Mom, as you're listening, she's not necessarily a national voice. She's not um, your traditional educator. Um, She worked in a factory all of her life, and on her day off, she cleaned rich people's homes. It's her cutting-edge analysis and what Dr. Sean Ginwright would call her critical hope because she always found those 21-foot ladders for 20-foot borders. So she comes to mind right away. And so I think where she would be at her growth edge, mom, I'm sorry to say this, is how do we build a 21-foot ladder movement as opposed to giving people individual ladders. Uh, The other voice that I think about is my good friend and colleague, Jeff Duncan-Andrade. And he also talks about raising roses in concrete and developing critical hope. Uh, I'm not sure what his growth edge would be, uh, but he's, he's definitely a voice that's in my head and in my heart. Dr. Valenzuela, who is in Texas, who speaks about subtractive schooling and the concept of cariño or deep, deep love as a type of medicine and healing that needs to be happening in schools. Those are the three that come to mind right away that I think of. I want to uh, have them all. This is gross. Have them all have a baby. Um, and uh, I can't believe my mom would be having a baby with Dr. Valenzuela and Dr. Duncan Andrade, but if they had an amazing baby, it would be this awesome baby that would really move our country forward. Uh, again, apologies to my mom. <laughs> you get to ask the next question, right?
1: <laughs> yep, all good. Um, so if you were a superintendent in OUSD, what would be the 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 first thing uh, you you do and why
2: I wish I had an awesome answer I think I want to say something ridiculous like I'd fire myself and I would fire the central office and I would start all over but that's so easy to say because I'm not in those shoes and um, like it's Thursday right now when we're talking but what a Monday morning quarterback type of thing to do um but i think that i would want to uh invert the uh pecking order and the hierarchy that exists i recently saw something on social media about the org chart that used to exist and how it's progressively getting better and so i would want to rethink org charts altogether i would want to look at who sits at the table and who doesn't and not pay lip service to equity um I love the equity team that exists, and I would disband the notion of an equity team. If you have an office of equity, that means that the other thousands of people aren't necessarily relegated to even think about equity because someone else is handling that. And so I would rethink how we do things. Um, I would quickly upset a lot of people by wanting to close certain schools and open others. That has never gone well for anybody. Um, I would not stand idly by. I would not live in the hills. I would be as proximal as possible. I would ask our educators if they were willing to live in the neighborhoods where they taught in. Otherwise, I would show them the door. And so this almost sounds dictatorial and horrible and my way or the highway, and so I would really have to fire myself really quickly. As you can tell, I'm not well suited to be superintendent of Oakland Unified.
0: What or who inspires you in Oakland to continue working in education?
2: Her name's Kimberly Guzman. Kimberly, I just saw her the other day and I apologize to all my young people that I'm shouting Kimberly out because all my young people inspire me but Kimberly is a young lady who I met when she was a ninth grader at Fremont High School uh, she has gone on to graduate from Fremont High, she just graduated from SF State and when she speaks, she speaks with fire in the belly, with conviction she doesn't give a lot of credence to 20 foot borders. Um, I hope she'll allow me to say this But um, her father was deported and murdered um, Her mother has always made a dollar out of 15 cents uh, Selling tacos to get someone through college And this family is not the Horatio Alger story That's not what I'm highlighting It's someone who has found the healer, the scholar, and the warrior within has self-actualized and is now community actualizing. And so uh, that's someone who I would want to build a movement around and with. That's someone who's helping design our school. That's someone who is amazing young person. She's in her early 20s. And if you ever get to hear her speak, you'll just get it. Um, what oozes out of her is critical hope. She doesn't have time for 20-foot borders. And so she's deeply inspiring to me.
1: All right, last question. Uh, What do you get to see or experience that you wish everyone else in Oakland
2: could see or experience? So um, I've been struggling economically lately, and I'm very privileged, and so is our family. And um, I received an interesting comment from a nice friend and colleague on social media who said, you know, you're a teacher, so teachers equals poverty. And that is a very popular narrative. During my, in my 17th year of education at Arise High School, in the Fruitvale, I became their dean. And Romeo and Laura Flaxman, who were the, the co-founders along with Emma Paulino and others, and the, the principals, they were ridiculous enough to pay me the, the, the greatest salary I've ever received in my life. In my 17th year of education, they wanted to give me $62,000 a year. That's when I knew I was the richest human being on earth. I was already super rich. And they want, me to, they want to help me pay rent. I've been a renter all my life. Uh, owning a home seems almost impossible in the Bay Area and in Oakland. All of that is context to say I'm the richest person I know. I operate from a 21-foot ladder. I have so much hope. I'm deeply connected to my culture and roots. Um, I love life. And yes, we might get evicted. Yes, we don't have September rent. Yes, two days ago, we went to the grocery store and it said insufficient funds. And I had to stare at my three kids and say, I'm sorry, I can't get you food. And I posted that on social media and people's reaction was almost this, pobrecito, I'm deeply privileged. Something else is going to turn up. But I think what I get to experience in Oakland is cultural wealth, community wealth, a sense of purpose, a sense of community. Um, I love East Oakland. I love the 6400 block. I love my neighbors. I love roses in concrete. I love the community of warriors that are here. I love the young people that are here. I live in heaven on earth and yes sometimes we hear drive-bys and a lot of times there's the helicopter buzzing we call it the barrio bird that keeps saying uh you know you have a couple of seconds to get out before we come in and we're hyper policed but i love my life i love my family i'm thankful for health listen i get to breathe I don't know if after this, after this, I'll step outside and get shot and die. I don't know if this is my last moment on earth, but I live Carpe Diem. I live my life to the fullest, and I'm so thankful to be able to do that. Um, I hope everybody sees the world that way. I don't just see the, 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 the looming eviction and the lack of funds and the negative of bank account and the president that we have. I count my blessings so much. And I just hope that people, if they're able to listen, that they count their ears. If they're able to see, that they count their eyes. If they're able to walk, that they count their feet. If they're able to wake up, that they're thankful for their breath of life. And I think if they do, a new world is possible.
0: Thank you for giving us so much of your time today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, both of you. I I, want to apologize to the listeners and to the two of you because we went on a crazy roller coaster that I don't even know if it made any sense, but I had fun in the roller coaster. So just thank you for that.
0: Then we I think we did our jobs then. If you had a good time, this is your episode. So there you go.
1: And probably not your last (laughs) (laughs) if you would be so gracious.
0: Uh, so we'll be back uh, in a moment we're gonna we'll be sure to share all sorts of ways that you can be in touch with Cesar and support the work directly thanks everyone Thanks again, Cesar, uh, for coming on the episode, speaking directly to you. And thank you, listeners, for sticking with us this long. Uh, We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Obviously, we did not have uh, time to ask him even more questions, uh, more about his time at Harvard, more about Cesar's experience with Oakland Startup Weekend EDU and and being a winning uh, team leader there for his pitch of his new school model, Homies. Uh, You can connect with Cesar directly. Uh, He is at Teolo on Twitter. That's T-E-O-L-O-L. And you can find him on Facebook as well. His website is homiesempowerment.co, which speaks to some of his prior work uh, over the years in Oakland, but it's also going to be the future home of the new school model as it gets going.
1: This... uh this podcast is coming out right as OUSD and other Oakland schools are uh, coming back from the summer, so a great time to catch up on what's gone down with the GR project over the the summer, or come listen to us for the first time. Um, and please get connected. You can find us on Twitter at the GR proj. That's P R O J. You can like us and reach out to us on Facebook. Our website is thegrproject.com, and we've got our digital tip, tip jar out at patreon.com slash thegrproject. So if you like what you're hearing um, and would like to support us in a, in a tiny, tiny way, um, please, please go take a look over at uh, Patreon. We, uh, we, of course, will be updating the website um, on a regular basis. Keep an eye out for future guests. Feel free to suggest a question or a guest there. You can email us directly at the grproj at gmail.com. Uh, we have a number of upcoming guests, uh, including Maria Rangel, Cliff Hong, and Dr. Susie Wise.
0: Yeah and we'll be working hard to get uh notes up uh for Cesar's episode with lots of links there there were tons of great books and orgs and people uh, and so we we will do our best to to go through the whole, go through the episode with a fine tooth comb, pull out all those, and get them up in the show notes. So please look over there. And thank you all uh, to those of you who have gone over to iTunes or to SoundCloud to rate and review the podcast. It really really makes a big difference. And for sharing on Facebook and Twitter and wherever wherever you share these things out there in the interwebs on the electronic internet machine, as uh, some like to call it. So thanks very much, and uh, we'll be back soon with our next episode. So long.